Once upon a time, I stepped off up the plane onto the tarmac at the Kailua-Kona Airport on the Big Island, and I was stopped in my tracks. I had never had experienced anything so beautiful as the dark, warm Hawaiian night. It was a clear night, no moon, and the stars came down to the ground all around me on all sides. Even under the belly of the plane, you could see stars down to the ground. It was like being inside a velvet bowl with diamonds, and the Milky Way was like a river in the sky, and the smell of the flowers was mesmerizing. And right there, at that moment, I fell in love so hard with Hawaii that I vowed, sight unseen because it's dark. <laughs> I'm making this decision based on the smell of the flowers and the sight of the stars and the feel of the air. This is my promised land, I decide. At the time, I was unhappy professionally, personally, spiritually. I wanted to reboot my life. So, logically enough, I got involved in a business on the Big Island. And when I say I was involved, actually I was the chairman of the board. So, you know, notice the entitlement in this story. I invite myself somewhere where I know no one, and then I put myself in charge. <laughs> Who has, who has done that before? Um, so living and working in Hawaii was more difficult than I had anticipated. And then one day I got caught in a rip current, like an actual rip current where you're on the way to Japan. <laughs> Swimming against it, against it. And I'm, I, I really thought this is it for me. And then a fisherman, a Hawaiian man, looks up and says, Swim sideways. And I'm, you know, and f finally, with enough shouting, he, he, this way, he encourages me to swim sideways out of the rip current, which is how you get out of a rip current. You just s swim, like from here to there, and you're, you're done. It's not pulling you anymore. So this near-death experience opened my mind to learning some new things about my chosen home and to learning from its original people. And that adventure has brought me back here to you today with this message. And I'm gonna be covering 400 years of history, so if anyone needs to use the restroom, I will understand. <laughs> but it, it, it is fascinating. We all feel entitled to move, right? That's how our congregationalist ancestors got here. They were discontented, they wanted a reboot, and so they did it. That's how my European ancestors got here, and your European ancestors, if you have them, they did not see themselves as uninvited guests. They just moved here and made the place their own. Settler colonialism is foundational to the United States of America, from sea to shining sea and all the way out to Hawaii, too. The colonialists' mindset of entitlement grew and still flourishes in the long shadow of our white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ancestors' religious education. Okay, it's not the color of their skin, it's their religious education that we're talking about here. So hold on to your hats and fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. As Unitarian Universalists, our shared past starts with the first Massachusetts Bay governor, John Winthrop. 
In his sermon, A Model of Christian Charity, written in 1630 aboard the Arbella, he wrote, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are on us. Now notice the entitlement and certitude of that statement. I wanna, I wanna emphasize the white Anglo-Saxons Protestants aboard the Arbella saw themselves in a covenant with their God. And Winthrop laid it out. When God gives a special commission, he looks to have it strictly observed in every article. He reminded his flock that Saul, God gave Saul a commission to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And when Saul did not do this, Winthrop reminded the, the, the people on, on the Arbella that it lost him the kingdom, which he should have been his reward. So when the Puritans and, and the pilgrims came to their new Canaan, they knew that they were going to have to take it from the new Amalekites, from people like my native ancestors. So this divinely entitled thinking became more entrenched as time passed. 200 years ago, almost to the day, Boston was buzzing over the imminent departure of the first missionaries to Hawaii. The sending organization was called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, or the ABCFM. This was founded in the early 1800s by conservative missions ministers from Williams, Yale, and Andover Newton. They thought it was important to explicitly justify the Christian supremacy and to demean the beliefs of the people to be evangelized. There is no clearer example of supernaturally justified entitlement than the Reverend Herman Humphrey's sermon for the ordination of Asa Thurston and Hiram Bingham. Thurston and Bingham were leaders of the first companies of ABCFM missionaries to Hawaii. Now, this sermon was delivered on September 28th of 1819, about 200 years after the Mayflower landed, and it, the missionaries sailed from Long Wharf in Boston on October 23rd of 1819, which is almost 200 years ago today. So it seems like a good time. Let's take a look at Humphrey's sermon, entitled The Promised Land. It begins, God as supreme ruler and absolute protector of the world, thought fit to give all the land of Canaan to Abraham and his posterity for everlasting inheritance. Abraham, or Humphrey reminds the missionaries that it is up to us to take what God has promised. He mentions the word, the verb possess or the noun possessions 31 times in a 35 page sermon. It was very specific. In the sermon, Christianity is equated with civilization and paganism is equated with savagery. We hear about pagan darkness, Mohammedan delusion, the lewd and sanguinary despotism of Hindustan, the wandering hordes of Tartary, the emptiness of South America, the hoary head of Hawaii, and about a scorched Africa where wild and savage inhabitants live in degraded idolatry. And, that's not all, as for the wild men of the American forests, they must all be tamed. And I'm not kidding, you can, I have, if you, anyone's interested in this sermon, I can 
It's public domain, I can send you a copy. The sermon has a bit of a flavor of a pep college pep rally. He's, they're speaking to people who are, these missionaries are in just turning 20 as they're sailing off. And at the time, theology was uh, the American national sport. There was a big rift in between the religious liberals at Harvard and the Calvinists at Yale and Andover Newton and Williams College, who were the sending organization for, for the missionaries. Um, earlier in 1918, a Harvard man, William Ellery Channing, he preached a controversial sermon in Baltimore that was called Unitarian Christianity, and that made waves. And we all know the end of that story, right? The, the, the split between the Unitarians and the UCC church. But let's get back to Indigenous Peoples Day. As our ancestors became more theologically liberal, did their thinking patterns change? Or did they still think that they, now I'm talking about the Unitarians, did, they, did the Unitarians have the mandate from on high still? So let's fast forward into the 1950s. At the time, the Reverend Frank Ricker was executive director of the Pacific Council of the American Unitarian Association. He worked closely with the Unitarian Fellowship of Honolulu and to grow it into a church, and then, coincidentally, he ended up getting called as their settled minister, and he moved out there to Hawaii with his family just before Hawaii became a state or allegedly became a state. In, in Honolulu, this Reverend Ricker was very successful with the mainland folks at the University of Hawaii and the various military bases. Um, elsewhere, he really struggled to attract congregants. Um, he was interested in setting up fellowships on the neighbor islands, and he traveled there to see what possible role there would be for a Unitarian church. And he ended up in the, on the Big Island, up in North Kohala, and he, he met someone who took him under the wing and introduced him to some of the local notables. And it was there in North Kohala that Reverend Ricker met his first native Hawaiian. Now, he had been in Hawaii now for like three years, but finally he meets a Hawaiian, Hiloki Mo'okini, and he, this man astounded Reverend Ricker because he was A, the pastor of the local Christian church, and at the same time, B, he was the kahu, or caretaker, of the Mookini Heiau, which is a place of worship that has been in use for 1,200 years and still is. And that's not all. He was also performing pule and ceremony for the, the um, shark Aumakua, or the, one of the uh, protectors of his chiefly line, the Kamehameha line. Anyway, this Rickard, Reverend Ricker's mind exploded, and he was amazed at how the Kanaka Maoli people had integrated what they called, and Mike Kumu still calls, the Sunday God, it, without abandoning their culture. It was like unheard of. So he was so amazed, he wrote home to the American Unitarian Association headquarters in Boston, and this letter, which is dated June 23rd, 1959, is four pages long, single-spaced, in like 10-point type full of exclamation points and caps. And he described the, the continued existence of the old Hawaiian religion, and then he added this about Buddhism. He says, here, they find no inconsistency in participating in some church of the generally Christian order and also maintaining some relation to the Buddhist temple. 
This will be something of a surprise and shock to many who are accustomed to mainland Christian conventions, but here it is apparently the pattern that we are going to have to deal with if we are going to succeed. Now, I, in my graduate studies, I searched the dusty archives of Meadville Lombard. There are three linear feet of correspondence between this Frank Ricker and the American Unitarian Association. There was nothing said about religious coexistence. The concept of the Sunday God and the shark God together was too much, and so was Unitarianism and Buddhism. It was just too much for their minds, too unorthodox. They thought of themselves very consciously as free thinkers, but they were free thinking inside the Christian tradition, or maybe around the fence and then, oops, sorry, sorry, looking from outside the fence back at what was inside the fence. There weren't, they weren't going into other pastures. Now, I think I'm, what I'm laying down here is some heavy stuff, and I'm going to tell you a, a short story about how it feels to be vigorously educated in this way, how it felt to me. On my first visit to the Big Island, I, I wanted to swim with turtles, and I went to a place that the guidebook said was Turtle Central. And when I got there, I realized that I, I had a problem, because I had the prescription scuba mask, and I have my glasses, and without my glasses, I could see the ocean. But then getting back, how was I going to see my bag? How would I find my car keys? How, you know, so what I did is I cleverly spotted a very shapely, round, symmetric rock, and I propped my bag up there. I went swimming. I had a lovely time. I came out with joy in my heart, and I saw three large people standing like this around my bag. And I rushed up. What was wrong? What had I been robbed? You know what happened, and the it turned out to be three Hawaiian ladies, very stern. And the middle lady pointed at my bag and said, "Heva," and I could tell the person who was in trouble was me. But I wasn't sure what I had done, so I reached down, I got my glasses, I put them on, I looked down at the rock, and you know, the rock looked back at me with big, beautiful, a big, beautiful eye. It was not a rock. <laughs> it, was a, it was a turtle. I had leaned my bag on a turtle, and here are the people of the, you know, and they're, they're coming to find out what the heck. So I said, I am so sorry. That was so stupid. And I fell to my knees and apologized to the turtle. Having been raped, my father was the kind of man who would have taken the first principle to include the animal kingdom. So I fell, and, and then the mood changed right away. They helped me get back up, and the, the very stern lady said, keep your glasses on, girl. <laughs> and then, and then, they, and then as, as I'm walking away, they're shaking, the, well, actually, I'm not walking away yet. They're shaking their heads, and, and the one on the right said, this one not stupid. And then the other one said, yeah, just, just fresh, fresh off the boat. And then the middle lady said, just ignorant. And the way that she said ignorant made it sound so redeemable, so edgy. And so then what I said is, teach me, and I'll learn. And then what she said is, two eyes, two ears, one mouth, listen look and learn. And that, that was my first lesson in how to be a better and more considerate person. 
Um, later on, much later on, I learned that she, she had embraced me with this gesture, the, the honey where you press your forehead and nose together and exchange the, the breath. What that means in my Kumu's teaching is when you're greeted like that, you receive the blessing and welcome to the land and the responsibility that goes with it. And that is the simplest, clearest way that I can express all of my years, what I have learned from the Hawaiian culture is with the right comes the responsibility. But meanwhile, back in the land of the, land of the free and the home of the brave, we are still swimming in the water of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant colonial assumptions. We have been taught to focus on our own entitlement. We are further enculturated to believe that whatever we want to do in the name of progress is blessed by a higher authority. The, the so-called progress narrative is a direct descendant of the idea that God gave the promised land to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And this progress narrative is the justification for how the American West was won. And the progress narrative is today in full swing in Hawaii. The international astronomy community has decided that Mauna Kea is the best place in the world for observatories. The University of Hawaii, whose mission it is to support indigenous learning, has somehow created an industrial park for astronomy in a conservation zone on the Mauna. Universities from all over the world, funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, are chomping at the bit to build the 30-meter telescope. And MIT and Harvard are both part of this, by the way. I'm not telling stories about other people. I'm telling stories about us and what we are doing. MIT and Harvard are part of this through their affili affiliation with this group called Aura, the Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy. And in case you're wondering what legitimizes all this entitlement, the answer is science. Science, which leads to progress, is what Mauna Kea should be used for, for the sake of all humanity. According to the progress narrative, the, all the world's children will thank Hawaii for the 30-meter telescope. Now, most Kanaka Maoli do not see Mauna Kea this way. Mauna Kea, mountain summits are the Vau Akua, the realm of the gods. Mauna Kea is the domain of Poliahu, the snow goddess, and her sisters, the mist, the rain, and the fog. Many in the astronomy community sneer at the supernatural element of this and completely miss the point. When we sanctify Mauna Kea, we sanctify our ancestral connection to the land. When we worship Poliahu, we are committing ourselves to the sacredness of the water cycle. In the middle of the vast Pacific Ocean, fresh water is life, literally. Mauna Kea and the other mountains of Hawaii catch the clouds and make the rain happen. And as we learn today from the hymn, the word in, in the Hawaiian language for water is vai, and for um, riches is vai vai, double rain, double fresh water. Now, should someday we get to look up on Mauna Kea and we do not see its summit bristling with telescopes, we might be symbolically reminded that humanity's place is as a part of nature, not superior to nature. We UUs would call this a victory for our seventh principle, the, the respect for the interdependent web of all existence.
Now, this, this next part is tough to, tough to hear, so hang on. Native Hawaiian people have opposed the development of Mauna Kea since the beginning, and they have been fighting TMT supporters in the state courts for the last 10 years. But the progress narrative is baked into the Hawaii state laws. The project has been cleared to go forward without, causing, without confronting the root issue, that Hawaii is a state only in the American imagination. Again, this is true. The Kingdom of Hawaii was never ceded. The Kingdom did not legally become part of the United States just because the, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate got together and decided that it would be a good idea to annex and have military occupation. The, the U.S. government never got consent from the Hawaiian people to take over their home, just like nobody on the Mayflower got consent from the Wampanoag and nobody on the Orbella got the, any consent from the Massachusetts people. And you know, this is what I mean by the rivers of history are still flowing, we are still in, in, in the current, and when we turn our, away, our attention away from the fact that if we are associated with either MIT or Harvard, we are complicit in this, then you know, I'm gonna continue with my sermon. Uh, in 2019, Mauna Kea, Put, protesters put their bodies on the line. They set up a base camp protecting the road up to the, su up to the summit. There's a road over the mountain and then a road up to the top. So they're right at that intersection. And this is a peaceful assembly led by elders. And to give you an idea of how radical it is, I want you to conjure in your mind UUA General Assembly, right? A grueling event. And, but very, very spiritual and fulfilling at the same time. Can you imagine a 93-day version of General Assembly with no end in sight, where you are worshiping three times a day, not just twice, where you are camping on a lava field, not lounging in a hotel, where you are exposed to the baking sun and cold rain at 6,500 feet above sea level? On Mauna Kea, on a slow day, there are a thousand people doing this. On the weekends, the, the weekend I was there in August, it was up to 7,500 people. 800 of these people are faculty, students, or staff from the University of Hawaii. The, the, the base camp is bristling with PhDs. Every month they, they have uh, rallies on all the islands. Last Saturday, 25,000 people marched through the streets of Waikiki. All the college campuses are being occupied by students. Uh, this morning, the University of Hawaii has shut off the wireless, trying to you know, get people to go home. The Mauna Kea protesters have been arrested, sometimes repeatedly. Indigenous people are targeted by law enforcement for things settlers and tourists get away with as a matter of routine. To protect the interests of the University of Hawaii and its international collaborators, the state has spent more than $9 million so far maintaining a police presence poised to roll out sound cannons and tear gas against these, the uh, Hawaiian version of General Assembly. Now, meanwhile, no one from the 30-meter telescope organization in Pasadena, California, has ventured out to Hawaii to see the faces of the people who will take the brunt of the violence in this struggle. It is, the, the, the entitlement of this is staggering. And I could tell you about the gaslighting by the mayor and the governor and the harassment over public toilets and the stonewalling by the university and the false flag operations by the police and the spin from the TMT public relations and the online hate 
but we don't have time for that. I will only go into to one thing, religion. Online, astronomers have gone online to say, guess what? Indigenous spiritual belief are, beliefs are wrong and backwards. This is the same message of the Puritans 400 years ago. This is the same message of superiority that preached at the missionaries' commissioning 200 years ago. Astronomers are scornful because Hawaiian spirituality incorporates supernatural beliefs. Ironically, the astronomy community's own sense of entitlement is directly descended from supernatural authority. It's the supernatural, they may have taken on atheism, but they're still walking in the old patterns of divine entitlement. On the mountain, the Mauna Kea protectors are holding oppression and desecration at, at bay through nonviolent practice of kapualoha. And meanwhile, down in the resorts, in the bars and the restaurants, people are singing kanaka vai vai as a hint that maybe some of the people who brought Christianity should read further than Deuteronomy and get to the second half of the Bible and find out how it ends with teaching you how to love and how to share. So when we sing Kanaka Vai Vai, in my heart, we are swimming sideways against the doctrine of discovery, which is the idea that only Christians can be rightful landowners. This idea springs from three papal bulls in the 15th century. It made its way into law in the US and Indian property law in the 1823. The 1820s were quite, quite a lot was happening back then. That Supreme Court landmark decision, Johnson versus McIntosh, and from there, the rip current of Christian entitlement was institutionalized in our legal system. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the sainted one, has cited this case as recently as 2005. So this is a powerful current. And you can educate yourself about this with this year's UUA Common Read, an indigenous people's history of, of the United States. You can learn more by joining me on Thanksgiving Day at the, um, in Plymouth, Mass, at the Indigenous People's National Day of Mourning rally which is a lot more fun and interesting than it sounds. It's, it's a very heart-opening experience. If you are a member of the Harvard-MIT community, I invite you to meditate on the entitlement. Is Harvard, is MIT entitled to a piece of a telescope that is one with state violence on behalf of people who do not live in you know, do not, do not care. Um, if you are a resident of Massachusetts, I joined the Native people in this land to ask you to look at the indigenous people's legislative agenda. Look at the handout and inform yourself. And we, we also have, here's the, the handout from the people on Mauna Kea about being an ally. This is very good general information. But here in Massachusetts, we want to ask ourselves, do we condone? What gives us the, the divine right to have indigenous sports team mascots? Why do we have a, why do we objectify a Native American on our flag? Like, what is that about? Why, why are we still here? Um, so finally, when we Unitarian Universalists look back at the founding of the Mass Bay Colony, how do we feel? Do we still believe that we are God's chosen people? 
that our actions against Native people and their land are divinely justified. I say no. I say that violates our first principle. And I think we need look no further than Ralph Waldo Emerson. In his famous Divinity School address, he argued that individual moral intuition is a better guide than traditional religious practice that has been locked in time. The problem today is that religiously justified entitlement, it lingers in one's mind like cobwebs. We need to swim through that, clear our minds, and swim sideways against this current of injustice, swim toward love, swim toward interdependence, swim toward who we truly are as Unitarian Universalists. And so may it be.